you know, they say, you know, you learn from your mistakes and that's very true. That what I found to be the case and what I think your listeners can probably take note of is that you learn from mistakes, but they don't have to be your mistakes. Welcome to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals, the show that teaches you and other busy pros how to grow your wealth so you can live life on your own terms. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. Our guest today is Buck Joffrey. Buck is a surgeon turned serial entrepreneur, an asset manager, and a podcaster. Dr. Joffrey finished his surgical training back in 2008. Since then, he has started multiple seven and eight figure businesses and has amassed a substantial portfolio of investments in real estate, energy, the internet, and the health sectors. Dr. Joffrey is also a financial educator. He is the host of the Wealth Formula podcast, one that I really enjoy listening to, and an international number one best-selling author of Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth. His mission is to provide financial education for high-paid professionals. And I know we have many of those listening to his show. So I'm really excited to have him on the show today. Buck, thank you for joining our team today. Thanks for having me. So, you know, imagine you getting out of your surgical training, you're getting out into the wide world, you've got your education done. If you're anything like most of the doctors that I know, you have a giant pile of debt, but a substantial income. What was your shift getting out into the world? And how did you cope with that? And tell us a little bit about your path getting into entrepreneurship. Yeah, I was an academic guy in residency and med school. You know, I was writing papers and thought I would end up a chairman somewhere. But toward the end of my training, I was getting pretty burnt out on hierarchy and academia and all that. So I was ready for some kind of a change. And, you know, my training ended and it was 2008, 2009, close around there. And training ended. I got married the day after training and went on my honeymoon on the way home from Puerto Vallarta randomly picked up a book from Robert Kiyosaki called The Cashflow Quadrant and read it on the way home. And I'd never thought about money, never even, you know, never really contemplated at all. I knew I was going to be making some as a doctor, but I'd never really thought about, you know, thinking of myself as a money guy and an entrepreneur, never really even thought of my, you know, what an entrepreneur was. And I came off the plane and was completely transformed. I mean, it it sounds sort of ridiculous, but it's true. I've told Robert Kiyosaki the exact same thing was on my show. It's just a bolt of lightning and I was off to the races. So I um, started a practice, but effectively right away thinking, well, I want to start a business and a practice. I never put my name on the door. I never, I started to try to create a brand. I was doing heavy marketing for a cosmetic surgery practice of mine was initially the owner operator doing TV, radio, internet, wasn't making much money, but I was spending a lot of money. And that became very successful. Ultimately ended up phasing myself out of that business and then did it a couple more times in a couple other medical related businesses. And then really got, you know, at this point I'm making money, right? I mean, so part of the reason I didn't start immediately going into real estate is I had no money to buy anything. So then I started, you know, looking at ways of turning that higher income, as he called it, into wealth. And as Robert Kiyosaki would say, having your money work for you. And that's the rabbit hole I went down. So, you know, I'm sort of the living animated version of the cash flow quadrant, I guess. Hmm, I like that. You know, Kiyosaki has the idea of a lot of us are carrying buckets, but what we need to be focused on is building pipelines for money to head to us. So you've certainly done that over and over again. 
now as a financial educator, you know, what have you seen, particularly a financial educator that points toward high paid professionals and educates them? What have you seen as some of the biggest mistakes that high paid professionals make in terms of wealth generation and then opportunities for them to avoid those mistakes and, you know, do even better? You know, I think the problem with high paid professionals that I encounter, and I encounter a lot, you know, a lot of people in the health field, it's certainly not all my listeners, but I have lots of doctors and dentists and I have a lot of engineers and all that too. But, you know, they are good students. They were people who were good at taking what was presented to them and basically turning around and being able to master that information. The problem is that when you finish school, you don't have a curriculum anymore. And so no one is telling you what to do. So you can't ace the test, right? So there's no test to take anymore. It's all sort of self-driven. And what happens in that situation is we tend to, people who are A students tend to become very firmly attached to conventional wisdom because they have nothing else to reach for in terms of a playbook. And so conventional wisdom in finance is stocks, bonds, and mutual funds and finding a good wealth advisor, et cetera. The problem with that is that conventional wisdom in this situation is influenced by special interests, namely the banks. And so I think the system is such that a lot of highly educated individuals come out of school thinking that there is a quote unquote conserve a right way of doing things. And that one way is the conventional route of the financial planner, stocks, bonds, and mutual funds portfolio, and you know, your 401k and all that stuff. I'm not saying that is a wrong way, but what I'm saying is that is it's not the only way, and it's certainly not a right way of investing. And I think that's breaking away from that orthodoxy that is very difficult for people. It's almost like having a religion and then trying to switch your religion or something like that, and it doesn't work. <laughs> And I think that's the biggest challenge is for people to actually admit that there might be other ways of thinking. I have people who, you know, investors uh, in my investor club that say it all the time. They say, you know, I don't know why. I mean, I'm even making money and it just makes sense. But for some reason, some part of me is always telling me I'm doing something wrong. Well, does that sound like guilt? It's guilt, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I think, you know, the orthodoxy is the problem. Conventional wisdom in financial the financial sense is the problem. Absolutely. I mean, there certainly are a lot of special interests out there. And I'd like if we could define, you know, what do you define in terms of numbers as a high paid professional? Because I feel like, you know, put a number on those. Well, so my show really focuses on accredited investors. So if you, I'm sure you've probably defined it, but it's $200,000 per year or $300,000 per year if you're filing jointly or a million dollars net worth outside of your personal residence. So the reason for that is because that's a definition that describes a person who is able to invest in various types of offerings. And my whole career as an investor has been investing in those kinds of offerings. So as much as I would like to be a resource for people who aren't making much money, I'm really probably not your best resource there because it's not my world and I don't pretend it is. So, you know, if you can put twenty five dollars or $50,000 into an investment and you meet these criteria, then that's kind of who I'm talking about. You know, so that's probably what I would, how I would define it as an accredited investor. Hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, more and more as time goes on, our lovely federal government likes to continue spending as much money as possible. And, you know, they pass the savings on to us in terms of higher taxes, generally speaking. And, you know, on a percentage basis, these high earners pay the most. And, you know, that's just kind of the way it is. So, 
Do you have any ways or recommendations or methods that these high paid professionals can reduce some of that tax bill and you know keep some of the money that they've earned? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call them recommendations or advice by any means, but I mean, there's certainly ways that the IRS allows for deduction. No, I think one of the mistakes that people make when they look at tax law, and again, I'm not a CPA, it's just it's something I've learned a lot about because it makes a difference. You can either just try to keep making more and more and more money, and that's, you know, you could, of course, you're going to do that, but it's easier to save the money and eliminate or at least mitigate your expenses. Biggest expense most people have is taxes. So if you can reduce that, it's like a business. You know, you have a top line and you have expenses and whatever's left is what you keep. It's profit. So your profit is what you personally make in your life is after taxes. So if you can eliminate or mitigate taxes, then you don't need to make as much. But yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of ways. And we talk a lot of these types of things on my show, um, Wealth Formula Podcast, just to name a few. I mean, certainly you know, various types of oil and gas investments. I'm not a huge fan of them, but that is a way of doing it. There's some serious tax benefits there. There are opportunities to buy equipment for business owners, et cetera, and utilize some of the bonus depreciation and, you know, Section 179. There's also even things like essentially buying deductions. I mean, there are things called conservation easements, which they have to be done correctly. They have to dot I's and cross T's, but you can significantly save a lot of money on taxes with that as well. But I think in order to get to that point, you have to be willing and willing to sort of think outside of the conventional financial world. So, hmm, Absolutely. I mean, the conventional financial world, you're not going to hear those answers, especially, you know, something along the lines of conservation easement. And, you know, I'm familiar with those from the side of the real estate investor who is essentially obtaining the conservation easement. You know, how does that work from the side of the highly paid professional who may or may not be a real estate investor just looking at trying to find ways to reduce their tax bill? How can they take advantage of that? That's definitely interesting. Well, I mean, you can syndicate a conservation easement the same way that you can syndicate any real estate. In other words, effectively what we're talking about here is you... A conservation easement is a, if you own a piece of land, you can declare it a conservation easement, essentially giving up all rights of building on that land. Okay. And if you do that, the government allows you, the IRS allows you to take a deduction, not only for the cost and the basis of the property itself, but in addition to that, a value that is appropriate for what could have been built there. In other words, say you had a property or say you had a piece of land and there was going to be a big project there. There was going to be a hotel there. There was going to be a resort there. But instead, you decided to give that property up and we're not going to build it. We're going to do this conservation easement instead. It means you don't build it, but now you don't write off just the cost of the land. You write off the appraised cost of the structure you were going to build. So in other words, it may not be a dollar per dollar deduction. It may be for every dollar you invest or every dollar you had actually spent, you might get four or five dollars of a deduction. So as you can imagine, that can be pretty powerful. Now, people might listen to that and say, well, that's crazy. That can't possibly be legal. But the reality is there are 
you know, the wealthiest families in the country are using this. And let me just point out that Ted Turner is known as a guy who owns a lot of land. Well, there's a reason for that beyond the fact that he likes Buffalo. (laughs) Donald Trump owns an awful lot of land and he is known to be a huge user of conservation easements. So going back to your question of how do you use this if you're a professional Well, you obviously have spoken on the topic of syndications. We do a lot of syndication in our group, but for multifamily real estate and that sort of thing. But there are also syndications for conservation easement purchases. So somebody might be literally selling property to do that. And so in those situations, you can participate as a passive, as a limited partner and effectively get the same benefits as if it was your own land. So that's what I'm talking about. So how would one go about finding those opportunities? I mean, accredited investors have a lot more options in terms of finding private placements than just sophisticated investors, since accredited investors can invest in more types of SEC-exempt securities. What are some ways that we might find a syndicated conservation easement opportunity? Well, I hate to say it, but the reality is it's not hard to find. I mean, you Google conservation easement provider and you're going to get a million of them. That's the easy part, right? Mm. It's, it's just like multifamily real estate. Here's the thing is that when it comes to these types of things, the IRS hates them. It's not illegal, but the IRS hates them, right? So what does that mean? It means that if you are not doing this in a way with an operator who knows exactly what they're doing and dots every I and crosses every T and goes through every point that has to be done, you could end up in some trouble. So to answer your question about how do you find them, it's actually not a whole lot of different than asking the question, how do I find someone who I want to invest with in multifamily Hmm. or in self-storage? So I always go back to, for me, it's all about network and who I know, who I like, who I trust. And that's how I discover these things. A lot of people think that you can just go and look at a piece of paper, you know, a pro forma, and that's what it takes to be a good investor. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. What I have found in my case is a passive, active investor, a sponsor of syndications, et cetera, is that it has less to do with everything else. The numbers, et cetera, are meaningless until you know the people, right? So I always tell my group, I invest in people. I invest in operators. I don't invest in deals, right? The deals are secondary. If I can't trust what's on the paper, somebody's going to be able to execute on what they're saying they're going to execute on, or somebody's going to do something legally (laughs) up front. There's no sense going there anyway. So yeah, I mean, the answer is the same way you would find any other investment. Yeah, that's interesting. I really, you know, personally, my own investing values, I fully agree with that that the team and the people come first. As we record this, properties I invested in passively are getting ready to be sold finally. And we're going to be in the black, but for much of the life of the investment, it looked as though that might not happen. And that was largely due to issues with the team related to the property management. The properties themselves are not bad properties. And and I'm sure the folks that buy them from us will do well and make money. But, you know, for our experience, you know, it looked iffy there for a while and it was entirely due to the reputability of the team and the composition of the team. So I I totally agree with that. The deal is 
subordinate to the quality, the experience, the reputation, all of that around the team. So absolutely. Buck, what is the best investment you've ever made? Well, the best investment isn't necessarily the investment that I would keep going back to. You know, I bought some buildings myself, not through syndication, but some apartment buildings over the past five or six years. And pretty much I got lucky in many respects because what happened is I was living in Chicago. I had some connections and, you know, people were kind of handing me, you know, really good at deals because I could close on them quickly. They knew I had capital. So I bought a handful of opportunities in the last five years that I ended up selling this year. Each one of them probably ended up with about a annualized return of about 100%. And to be quite frank, a lot of it was just because I bought at a slight discount because I was getting people out of loans, helping them out just to move money quicker. And then, you know, I did some minor improvements, but the reality is I bought and I got lucky because some of these areas got really hot and they gentrified in Chicago. And I just, I made a lot of money by just holding on to them. I was cash flowing through the whole time and then, you know, ended up with, you know, four or 500% on each property. So it was, that was probably the best. You know, I think I hesitate to talk about that a little bit because I think you don't, you know, as an investor, as somebody who is thoughtful about investing, I think the idea of getting lucky is even though it might have been my best performance, so to speak, I can't say that it's what I recommend for an investor you know, to get lucky. And I guess it depends on like, I mean, if you're talking about businesses, gosh, I mean, any of my businesses, I mean, those types of returns on those, I mean, we're not even talking well into the thousands of percents for the initial capital in those. But again, if you're talking about the types of investments that typically busy professionals are going to do, the group I work with primarily in our syndication group, the operators, I mean, their average return on investment to date is approximately 32% annualized on average. And that's hard to beat with any group. Yeah. But this is a professional syndication group that I have been lucky enough to work with. And so they are, I think that's probably the best is a passive investor. And then in terms of the worst investments, well, I'd say is an active one. It was the first apartment building I ever bought. I mean, I just went on the numbers and cap rates and all that stuff that they teach you. And I didn't do enough homework on everything else that you have to do if you're going to buy property all the intangibles, not the numbers. And I got burned, lost money on that deal and sold it for a loss. But I learned a lot. And then when I started investing as a passive guy, the first couple of times I invested, I didn't really necessarily know the people very well. I have one investment, for example, still from like five years ago that this guy who's really on the circuit for being a syndicator, frankly, I've never seen a penny return. And it's like a joke with my CPA and me. It's like the fund that has no returns. So I think, you know, these things are experience based. I think you get smarter as you do it. Like anything else, you're going to make some mistakes. But, you know, they say, you know, you learn from your mistakes. And that's very true. That what I found to be the case and what I think your listeners can probably take note of is that you learn from mistakes, but they don't have to be your mistakes, right? So if you can get in with people who've been around the block a few times and who've gotten pretty good at stuff, that's another, definitely another approach. And, you know, for my group, obviously, you know, I'm the guy that people are looking at to vet things and, you know, beat them up before they have to do the same. So 
That's interesting. I mean, I appreciate that you say, you know, in your essentially your best investment that you don't take full credit for it in the sense that bull markets make geniuses out of everyone. The rising tide really can help poor investing decisions look a lot better than they were. I'm certainly not implying that yours was poor in any way. I'm sure it was actually quite good and you would have done well even without the change in the market that you mentioned. But it's important that you know, from a psychology standpoint, in my opinion, it's important that we don't let our, we don't confuse our successes for and our outsized successes for some brilliance or infallibility on our own part, especially when it comes to investing, because then that's how we get burned in a bear market. It's one of the ways we can easily get burned. You know, I certainly appreciate that. And I think that leads you know, a lot into my favorite question. What is the most important lesson you've learned in investing? So beyond the fact that it's more about who you know, like, and trust in the team rather than the offering, let me go to a specific because I think it's very, very important for listeners right now to understand who are starting to look at syndicated deals. Because I think there is an abundance of opportunity for people to participate in syndications right now. And I think it's really important that people really understand what happened last time when in 2008, when people lost properties and what you can avoid. Because as you've mentioned, I think offline a little bit, yeah, the real estate markets are frothy, et cetera. Everybody's always predicting uh, blood in the street, blah, blah, blah. I personally don't see that happening anytime soon. But on the other hand, there is always cycles. And then we probably will have some cap rate compression, et cetera. In other words, you know, asset prices are probably going to go down. So I think one of the things to remember in 2008, when people got in big trouble uniformly, it was because they were over leveraged. And what I mean by that is that, say, for example, an apartment syndicator was using 80% loan to value. Okay. Now that means there was 20% equity, there was a loan of 80%. There was a lot of situations where even if the property itself was cash flowing, when the property values went down because the cap rates compressed, the loan itself was in violation of a loan covenant. In other words, these loan documents come with laws. They say, for example, we're getting you 80% of the loan. That means 20% of this needs to be equity. So if you're holding a property and all of a sudden it goes down by 20%, 30% in value, guess what? You're violating your covenant. And for so larger assets, we mostly deal with $20 million plus assets. This is non-recourse, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac debt. And they do automatic appraisals you know, every 12 to 18 months. So the moral of the story is one of the things that you can do to protect yourself is to make sure that you're not over leveraged or that the operator that you're working with is not using too much leverage, especially as it pertains to any potential loan covenant. So to simplify this, I would say moderate leverage. And then what else can you do to lower your leverage? Well, once you own a property... Right now, I wouldn't buy anything that was not a value-add opportunity because value-add increases net operating income. And if you increase net operating income, the value of the property goes up. And if you have a loan on it, guess what? You effectively deleverage, right? So I don't want to make this too convoluted, but I think the moral of the story is right now, if people don't know what happened in 2008 with properties and that sort of thing, and they're investing with 
people who may not have been in business in 2008 long enough to see all of the pitfalls, they need to make sure that these are considerations that are made. The long-term, when I say long-term, I'm talking about over the next five to six years. You know, In my view, owning real estate, because we're going to be in an inflationary environment, there's no question in my mind we're going to be in an inflationary environment. I also think we're going to be in a good economy in five years too, but it's a good place to be owning real estate but not if you're over leveraged, because then you put yourself in the crosshairs of violating a loan covenant and losing a property. So hopefully that was not too confusing, but I think it's an important thing for investors to consider. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think sitting and absorbing and thinking about the implications of what you're saying, you know, to my mind, you know, right now, a property that is over leveraged, say, just to put a number on it, three years from now, does not look like a property that is over leveraged right now. Yeah. So I'm trying to think of ways we can look forward, just generally speaking, and say three years from now, this property that I'm considering investing in, or you know, 18 months from now, whatever, put a date on it, this property I'm considering investing in, will that be over leveraged? Because right now, you know, they're not making loans that are on apartment buildings that are, you know, 100% loan to value or, you know, whatever kind of crazy loans they were doing on single families back in, you know, 2006, no doc, you know, no stated income, that kind of a thing. They're not doing that on apartments. So, you know, what can we look out for? Is it, you know, that 80% loan to value? Is it maybe they're looking at, refinancing in a few years to pull some capital out and that might be untenable, you know, I don't know. Well, well, I think the way you look at it is, you know, I mean, I think that in my opinion right now, in buying investing anything that does not have a strong value add component is not a good idea. And the reason I go back to that again is remember there's two ways to decrease leverage. One is just not to borrow as much. And then the other is to actually increase the value of the property. So if you're increasing the value of the property, you are effectively deleveraging, right? So you've borrowed a certain amount from the bank. And if the value of your property is going up because you've added value by driving up net operating income, you've deleveraged. So does that make sense? So that to me right now, the days that, like I said, I mean, I just bought these buildings and sat on them, painted the walls and whatever, and make 100% annualized returns. I think, is it possible that you can do that right now? I guess anything's possible, but I doubt it. I really doubt it. I mean, the markets are pretty frothy right now. And I think that I think there has to be and will be some sort of correction in part because rates are going up too. Right. So when interest rates are going up, then cap rates have to go up. Right. They have to. And so, I mean, it's just math. You cannot, you know, the market's not going to allow cap rates to be so low if interest rates get high enough where they're literally at the same level as the cap rates. Right. So you can't have a 5% cap rate. You can't have a 5% cap rate and take 5.1% interest rate. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, right now, as we speak, the Fed is raising interest rates and we've seen some lag in the system. You know, cap rates haven't started climbing back up quite at the same rate. The federal fund rate, the funds rate is climbing up and that gets into the 10 year treasury and all that. And it gets fairly complicated. But on a, you know, kind of a first principles basis, there's no way that interest rates can continue to climb and cap rates don't experience some serious 
upward pressure, at least, you know, with considering that lag in the system. I don't think there is. It has to. It has to catch up. I mean, that's the whole point behind interest rates growing up. Mortgage rates, obviously, you alluded to, they're really related to the 10-year treasury, which is a reflection of inflation, right? So as you have inflation, rates go up and cap rates go up. So the value of these properties has to come down a little bit in order to make that work. So those of us that you know currently own property, I think we need to be wary and, and watch out. Certainly, I agree you know, on the value investing or the value add front that we need to be looking for those opportunities. But if property values are coming down and we're already somebody that you know, we're already an owner of property in that market, I don't want to be that guy whose property values are going down. Definitely want to look for those value add opportunities. So I certainly you know, agree there. Before we close it out, is there anything else that you want to add or you know, any information you want to provide for our audience that maybe we didn't get to? No, I mean, I think pretty comprehensive. I mean, if anybody wants to know more about what I'm talking about, you know, certainly we've got our own a Wealth Formula podcast. We have our investor group in there too. And, you know, certainly that's a resource. We do focus again on people who are accredited because things that I talk about do tend to relate to that. The show itself is not really an investing show. We don't usually bring on people talking about investing in this, investing in that. The show is more broadly get economists and, you know, authors and things like that. You know, it's just more education. I think it's probably good for most people interested in just learning about money. Absolutely. And I certainly enjoy listening to your show. I think everyone should go check it out. Is that the best place for folks to get in touch with you and learn more about you? Yeah, I think that's probably the best place. You know, just wealthformula.com or wealthformula podcast. Great. Wherever fine podcasts are sold. So Buck, thank you for joining us today. And thanks everyone for tuning in to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Very happy to have you. I hope you got a lot out of the show today. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you know anyone that would benefit from this information, please feel free to share with them, point them in our direction. We're happy to continue providing you know these interviews and these awesome guests that bring such a wealth of knowledge on investing and wealth generation, more generally speaking, kind of outside of the norm. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. Thank you for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next one.